You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. And of course, as we do this time every Wednesday, it's time to talk to Marty Gibson. Good morning, Marty. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm good. I am a little colicky with the ingestion of the weekend papers. Oh, yeah. It was pretty high fibre. Oh, she was chewy. She was very, very chewy. I just ended up covering off, I covered off the main four. And I have to say, oh, good grief, I cannot abide any more whining about this coalition negotiation. It'll be done when it's done, people. I mean, the, the funny thing will be when it's done and then the media start shitting clocks because it turns out maybe Winston Peters is the Minister of Broadcasting. And maybe New Zealand First get their um, COVID inquiry, which starts to look at the dangers of having a bought and paid for media that's just parroting the government line on things that turn out to be not correct. They're not going to like that. So they might might need to be careful what they wish for. Oh, I know. And they they obviously don't do well on slim pickings, that's for sure, because it was there was lots of opining going on. I got really, really annoyed. You know, some of them were saying, oh, it's been five weeks. Even Christopher Hipkins, he had a bit of a tenty over it about being five weeks. But I thought, no, I'm going to have a look at some of these numbers because the reality of it is, is that I think they've been a bit unfair. It will be done when it's done. I would much rather that they don't rush it and they get a proper deal in place. And I looked at it, yes, whilst it's been five weeks, five-ish odd weeks since the election, it's the specials that actually make all the difference because at the end of the vote, once the, the day after and the, and the hangover had worn off for National, they very, very quickly realised that, ooh, actually there are a whole bunch of dynamics at play here and we don't necessarily know how we're going to be able to form this coalition. And that is primarily in how the specials will swing. And we all know that they tend to swing left and not swing right. And the other big factor was the overhang. At that stage on election night, the overhang was sitting at at one seat at 121. We now know it's blowing out to 123. So, you know, whilst um, we know Luxon had already ironed out a lot of coalition negotiations with David Seymour pretty early on, it was when the specials came in 19 days ago that actually those negotiations could start in earnest. They were always saying, oh, well, Jacinda got it done so much faster in 2017. No, 29 days, people. 29 days. We're uh, at day 19 now. And so. those negotiations were mostly just saying, yep, you can have that. Yep, you can have that. Yep, oh, well, you, want, you want that money once done? Or how much for that fund? When, okay, once deputy, 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 yep, 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 yep. That's what it is. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting to, uh, I had, given some thought about what the media could be doing during this time, if they were motivated to, they could be really going through some of the issues that the incumbent government has has got to face. They could be talking to prominent New Zealanders about what they thought was the most important thing. They could be analysing the impacts of the failures. And I mean, we always talk about education. I think it's the most important issue that that we've got to get right as fast as possible because it, it carries such terrible consequences, having gotten it wrong for this long. And there was very little of that. There was uh, a few pieces around the treaty and the fear-mongering of what a referendum would bring, but there was nothing about education reforms. Did you hear about Rangiora High School? No. Right. Well, Rangi, you'll appreciate this. Rangiora High School was did a big rebuild, and it was one of those ones that went into that whole open 
class learning structure and it was all into this new someone heard a TED talk once and thought it's a good idea thing guess what they're doing they've now announced for next year they're going to be building walls and creating single class spaces because shocker this format is too disruptive and distracting for both teachers and students they've only got teachers words for that because they never did any follow-up studies on its efficacy I mean, there was that Heather Duplessis-Allen interview about how the Auditor General had flagged some problems with the government actually measuring. She interviewed Christine Rankin, former head of WINS, and the Ministry of of Education apparently uh, measures its performance by engagement with its website. It's interesting that some of those stories are coming out now because there, there were a few of them now and then prior to this, but I would have thought there was a lot for the uh, Auditor General to be having conniptions about mm. uh, in the past six years. You uh, mentioned the editorial in the Sunday Star Times uh, by Tracy Watkins being in the midst of all of the hand-wringing about the carnage in the Middle East, being one of the the few people who actually brought the spotlight back to our own dead babies. Not just that, there was an article in the paper last week, I can't remember which one, talking about the horrible mistreatment of a couple of children and one presenting, you know, being seen by by an Oranga Tamariki worker in a car with bruises all over his face, compression in his spine, been sleeping in a urine-soaked duvet in a bath where he hadn't been allowed out of. And the point made in that uh, article, which I don't have to hand, so I can't quote it directly, but it was from Child Matters, the Child Matters CEO, saying, you know, for every dead child, there are many more abused children and there are many, many more neglected children. And often neglect psychologically is, is worse for kids. So what we're seeing in terms of the 50-plus deaths a year is, is just the iceberg of, iceberg. of those, yeah. Yeah, that are, and that it infuriates me that the government and I guess uh, to a certain extent Maori leaders are like, no, no, this is our thing, we're going to solve it. It's like, no, you haven't. Mm. You haven't solved it. You don't seem to be making any sort of dent in it. I refuse to have an intermediary between me and the absolute unacceptability of that sort of abuse and neglect happening Mm. in a country where enough resource to feed hungry children well, I just look at this baby Ruth thing and they the number of suspects and people with this are, are incredibly small. And the fact that OT were aware of issues there, and I just look at baby Ruth and I think, well, I mean, for starters, anybody that calls their child ruthless empire, really? Hmm. I'm surprised that it actually got past birth, death and marriages. Usually they're fairly strident on these sorts of things. But anyway, that aside, I just look at this and I think this is going to be another Nia Glassie. This is going to be another... Kahui twins. Kahui twins. Mm. People knew. They know. And they've closed ranks. They're doing the same here. And unless you fix all of those sorts of triggers, this will continue on. That, to me, is where this focus should be. Yes, I know it's really awful that there are all these children dying in the Middle East. I take that on board. And part of the reason this came up is that it was the International Day of the Child. So there was lots of these stories and letters talking about this, trying to place a highlight on this. And I actually, good on you, Tracy Watkins. Good on you for writing this article and Mm. actually highlighting what's going on in our own backyard because I think it's very very easy to get distracted by what's happening elsewhere and I know that Karina Shields has been really hot on this she wrote a fantastic piece in plain sight uh, which I really recommend that you read 
Because this is just it. You know, I look at all of this and I actually pulled out the old serenity prayer, which is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I actually think we need to remember that when we're looking at a lot of these issues, because there's a lot actually that we can't change, but we're tying ourselves up in knots, Mm. believing that we can. Well, I mean, you know, the other thing that Tracy Watkins just dipped her toe into, which comes back to the point I made about, you know, Maori leaders saying, oh, this is a Maori issue, we'll sort it out. We also know that there had been a knee-jerk response to a highly emotive and sympathetic documentary about child uplifts that led to a dramatic reversal in the number of babies being removed from at-risk homes. You know, the the media's got some blood on their hands with this. It's Mm. that reflexive idea. Oh, you know, these people are just misjudged. I've seen kids in gang environments. They look miserable. They look like they don't get the care that every child deserves. Not all, not all. But if you give them the option of being cared for, relate, spoken to, fed properly, the cultural thing second to that. I'm sick of pretending that Maori are a different species. Those human needs are all the same. And if, if it's a choice between staying in, a, in an environment that's manifestly dangerous for a child or going to be in an environment where they're cared for while the family sorts itself out, I'd take the second option every time. Oh, absolutely. As, as heartbreaking as the, as the sight of a mother not wanting a child taken off her is, again, I have to live in, in a country where this is happening. We need to stop zeroing in on government for everything. We've got to start thinking, well, if teachers at school know the kids who aren't getting fed properly and and the families who are struggling, you know, how do we make some contact with those families and say, hey, you know, let's get together a bit. Let's work through some of this to, to help maybe take some of the stress off or let's make it so as, as a neighbourhood we've got better outcomes. It's also been the legitimization of really poor behavior. And, and it comes back to that whole constrained, unconstrained vision of Thomas Sells. I mean, the unconstrained vision is there is a problem and every problem is able to have a solution and therefore you can have intervention and you can fix it and you can make all boo-boos better. Whereas, of mm. course, the constrained vision is is that human nature is human nature is human nature and it doesn't matter what color or creed or where you come from, there are shits out there and they're going to do really awful, nasty things, and that is a constant. So how do you mitigate the constant because you know that the constant is there? And there are always going to be poor families. And when I say poor, I don't necessarily mean financially poor, but poor in education, poor in behaviour, poor in morals, whatever you want to apply, that will then display really poor behaviour. And the children are the ones that are most vulnerable and are affected. And and that normalising behaviour that we have now, I find really disturbing. And excuse-making. Yeah. It is excuse-making. And that's where, of course, the the roles of faith used to step in. And then in the paper, I could not believe it. Did you see the whole expose? Obviously, the headhunters can afford a PR consultant. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. Far out, fluff a duck, Really? Yeah, we, we need a radical new approach to the way the, the country is being run. You know, there, there are so many things that we just seem to accept that are absolutely wrong. And, that, and that's the first hurdle to get over is to just 
shove off that neo-Marxist idea that, well, you know, one thing's as good as another. There's no absolute truth. I just um, saw that article and, you know, that whole sort of, you know, behind the veil and in the inner sanctum. They're trying to sort of normalise it. And it's like someone trying to normalise adult Hitler. Oh, don't worry about him. He's just a vegetarian artist. You know, it's like, for goodness sakes, people. Really? Mm. Sorry, I've got my ranty pants on today. Well, it's 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 hard not to feel frustrated. It's especially uh, head slapping. I don't know which uh, which thing to start talking about first with this, but just watching the left try and explain why they lost and why people have had enough. And I mean, you know, I guess if you want to go straight to the real guts of that, it it's uh, the election of the Argentinian yeah. Argentinian president. I cannot wait to see how the international media are going to lose their shizzle over this. Well, I mean, what a breath of fresh air. You sent me the Tucker Carlson interview with him. So for the listeners, if you're wondering what we're talking about, Javier Millet has come out of nowhere in Argentina to win their election by a solid 10 points. He is a tele- He's actually an economist by training, and he is. Uh, he was also a soccer star. He played in a Rolling Stones cover band. Yes, he played in a Rolling Stones cover band. He's, he's got great hair. Yeah, he's got fantastic, fantastic He looks a bit hair. like the guy off of Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, he has certainly been a firebrand, and he's gone and set alight the electoral process in Argentina. Now, if you've ever spent time in Argentina, and I have, it is the most stunningly, A, it's a very large country, um, but I think you don't appreciate the absolute scale of the place until you're there. And it's also one that is has this incredible grandeur abated a bit faded. And one of the things that Mele is, is he's a self-avowed anarcho-capitalist and libertarian. Now, depending on the media that you read, some say far-right radical activists, but anyway, he he considers himself a libertarian, and I say libertarian with little L, not big L, and an anarcho-capitalist, and he is deathly allergic to communism and socialism, and he's now gone and swept to power in Argentina on the back of an absolute deep frustration of ongoing socialist policies that have led to rampant inflation, so currently 143%. So finally, the people have had enough. He has come out of nowhere to sweep the election on the back of the vote of a lot of youth voters. If you want to know the amount of time, obviously, it takes to swing young people away from the perils of communism, it obviously is 100 years because that's how long they've had socialism in Argentina. We hopefully don't have to wait 100 years. And a lot of younger people, that, and you'd know this because you've you've got... uh, a couple of them parked up here, couple, yeah. A couple of them parked up there. Plenty of them know that they're getting lied to at school. I mean, it's a traumatic experience, and it's one a lot of New Zealanders shy away from. You can see it when you start doling out a few facts after they tell you you're a conspiracy theorist. And you say, look, you don't need any theories. Here are some numbers. And they all but put their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 la. But when you do take one of those cards out and go, well, that's not true, and the people who told me that knew it wasn't true, then the whole house of cards collapses rather fast. And I mean, this is what's often criticized in the freedom movement is that, you know, they believe some things which seem kind of way out. And it's because, well, once you get a pretty good idea that the government knew that there were going to be heart issues with the vaccine they were calling safe and effective, they threatened doctors to the extent that people who presented with such heart problems were 
told maybe they had anxiety or it was all in their imagination, then it's natural enough to think, well, what else are they bullshitting me about? You can mock people all you like, but a far more effective technique is to present contradictory data. Speaking of contradictory data, did you catch Paul Brennan's interview? He did a catch-up interview with Guy Hatchard on Monday. Did you catch that? I didn't catch that. No, it was on my, it's on my to-do list. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. But one of the things he just happened to drop in there, and it was breaking news at that time that he did that interview, was Moderna have just had to, the regulators have just come in and trashed a trial from Moderna that they were doing on an mRNA vaccine for Epstein-Barr virus, which uh, some people may know as mono. There was 200 odd people in this trial and someone developed myocarditis and the mm-hmm. regulators came in, shut it down, junked it and said, no, nah, not going any further. Now, isn't that interesting how they've gone in, absolutely done that with that trial? I mean, is this because they've now learned to lesson? They've they've lined their pockets so much with the COVID vaccine that when it actually comes to another that they've tried to roll out for another virus, that that's what they've gone and done. I'd have to listen to the interview, but um, it's better than uh, opening the double blind trial and just vaxxing everyone once uh, the the results start looking worse. The thing about that is, is the fact that the regulators have gone and done that says to me that there is actually an awareness there. So is the tide starting to turn? Will they start looking at things more closely? And then when we bring everything back to where we are here, which is what we should be worried about, accept the courage to change the things that we can. What are the things that we can change? Well, we need to get a proper inquiry to see what are the things that we need to yeah. change. Yeah. I mean, before that uh, Guy Hatchard interview, there was the interview with Simon Elmer. Did you catch that? No, I missed that one. Author and co-author of Architects for Social Housing on his new book, The Great Reset, biopolitics for stakeholder capitalism. Fascinating. He was talking a lot about how things with seemingly innocuous stated reasons are related to what he called the four horsemen. I can't remember all of them, but one of them was uh, digital ID. Another CBCDs would have been another one. Yeah, the, the thing that we're seeing popping up everywhere, congestion charges which he said, you know, it's all cloaked in green, but it's basically designed to install equipment that reads number plates and starts to determine how far cars are moving, uh, possibly with a view to limiting how far they can move. And the other thing he was talking about was um, Agenda 2030, and I think the other one may have been climate change. But that's really worth a listen to, and I'm going to have to find that book and read it. It sounds uh, fascinating. Well, and to that end, Andrea Barnes on the Sunday Star Times, she actually, and I thought it was quite interesting. I was like, oh, where are you going this week with this, Andrea? So she said to win back. soft fringe back again. And the coquettish smile. So to win back Wellington, Labour will have to go to war with the Greens. A meeting of the Council's Environment and Infrastructure Committee last week was the living embodiment of how far the left has drifted from working people. No shit, shit. <laughs> you know, from the, oh, great, we're only finally catching up with the breaking news. Yeah. Anywho, residents um, will now have to compete for a number of permits, and the proposal will drive out more than 1,000 hospital staff who rely on free parking. And what they're doing is they're getting rid of all of this parking in Newtown in order to put in a cycleway. 
Patiently and politely, a succession of healthcare workers explained the upshot of these plans. Underpaid staff are spending a large proportion of their incomes on fuel and now parking, equivalent to about an hour's pay every day. Those who still use the street parking will have to shift their cars every two hours, using their brakes not to rest or eat. There is a lack of affordable parking spots available for the staff at the hospital, and fees recently doubled around to around $120 a month. But for most travelling in from the hut, Wainui Amata or Pori unreliable and inadequate public transport is not an option. There are also implications for patients who are too unwell to travel by public transport, both to the hospital and the nearby primary health clinic, which serves 10,000 locals. And for the residents of one of the lowest socioeconomic suburbs, who are now expected to find almost $200 in already stretched budgets to park curbside, the resulting questions from councillors came straight from the plutocratic fantasy land, earning it at around $120,000 a year with a free workplace car park and the luxury of zooming into all of these meetings. These representatives offered up a vague alternative to nurses and porters. What about carpooling, alternative bus routes or even shuttles? Mm. It's just completely losing touch, isn't it? Like there is that total disconnect of idealism versus reality. Yeah, it's interesting. I and mean, she sort of says it's it is possible to rebuild Labour as a political force in Wellington that can both win over the left liberal vote in the inner city and get the support of workers in outer suburbs. But in order to reclaim the city, Labour is going to have to start a civil war with Greens. Who cares? Yeah. Who cares about rebuilding Labour at this point? I don't see the value of it at this point. And, but I do, and I, I know you love this idea, and I love it the more I mention it. I'd love to see Wellington Central just live with their voting choices. And I would like to be able to live in the nice conservative Papalopolis where we vote ourselves a, a candidate that uh, allows us to solve some of our own problems with poverty and just take a lot of that middleman stuff out. You know, I mean, I've got family in Wellington and I, I mean, I love visiting Wellington. But if you're going to spend millions and even billions of dollars on prioritising cultural projects over infrastructure projects, well, you reap what you sow, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the tragedy is, again, that it's on so much borrowed money. They've kicked the can down the road everywhere in New Zealand. This is just speeding us towards the need for a rate reset. Well, this is why I'm so interested in seeing what is going to unfold in Argentina. So I happen to, I'm going to be back there this January. I will be really intrigued to see. I know he'll only be freshly minted and very little will have changed, but I will be in intrigued to see the mood of the nation um, from January 2020 to January 2024 and see what those differences are like there. Um, because how it much is, the bankers decide just to sort of trip them up. Yeah. And, it's a dangerous and, thing to do saying you're going to abolish central banks. Just I ask know, Abraham you, Lincoln. I know. Just ask yes. JFK. Yes. It's not a popular move among people. And he's wanting to also dollarize uh, Argentina, so that means he wants to introduce the US dollar. So, and that is not unheard of in South America. I mean, Ecuador is on the US dollar, yeah. and he's very, very allergic to communism. So he's been very, very outspoken about his newly elected neighbour to the north, uh, which is Lula, who is a died in the wool. Well, he'd say socialist, but <laughs> Melee calls him a communist. Uh, and of course, he is not, people are saying, well, what is he going to do? You know, this will mean Argentina won't be able to break into the BRICS nations, which of course is Brazil, Russia, India, 
China, South Africa, well, somehow I don't think he'll be that keen anyway. He's, got, he's going to want to forge his own path. So this was one of the other interesting things around him because, of course, one of the sticking points between Argentina and, and the United Kingdom, of course, has always been the Falkland Islands. Mm. Melee has caused controversy in the past by calling Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister during the Falklands War, a great leader. His likely Foreign Minister has also suggested the rights of the Falkland Islanders should be respected. Argentina maintains the islands, called the Malvinas by the Argentines, as part of their country. The referendum held in 2013 saw that 99.8% of the islanders vote to remain as a, as a British territory. So he obviously has quite differing views and he's more conciliatory where the Falklands come into it. So I will be fascinated to see how things progress in Argentina because we've already seen it with Viktor Orban in, in Hungary that you can make reforms and see success. Now he's done it uh, with a supermajority in his first term, and he's now had a couple of successive terms to get in to do it. How will Melee go? Will he stay alive long enough to be able to achieve what he wants to achieve? Well, could there be some sort of thing that's between BRICS and the American empire? I've always said there, there should be a UN of, of reasonable countries. New Zealand, well, formerly New Zealand. Maybe we'll get back to it. Norway. Guyana, Uruguay. You could just get these little countries and, and we could just be the voice of reason. Mm. <laughs> well, and that's just it. So Uruguay, which is just across Canada, the, the Plata, from, yeah, from Argentina, we'll see that's been run as uh, they had a dictatorship up until about 30-odd years ago, and they're now uh, run with a very solid uh, centre-right government, and they are the safest and most thriving country in South America and have been for a number of years. They're in a, very, very like New Zealand. They, I mean, when I was there in 2020, that struck me. A lot of beef, a lot of sheep, lots of wineries. Very happy about well, that. The, the Buscadero likes some – she likes a good She likes a good winery. Uh, so there's all of those beautiful beaches. And banking, they have created an economy – uh, based around solid, safe banking systems because they've seen their neighbours across the harbour. Wealthy Argentines, and especially from Buenos Aires, uh, they have kept their money out of Argentinian banks, primarily popped them into Uruguayan banks in order to keep their money safe because of the fluctuations at home. And many of them uh, hold property in Uruguay so then they can bounce between the two countries. And we're talking a ferry right here, people, so it's not a big ask. So then if you have two countries that become very economically stable together like that, I think, you know, South America is an underrated powerhouse. And you've got leaders like Millet who just look, you know, to the north, to that country that you've mm. spent time in, in Venezuela. And he's looking at that going, mm -mm -mm, we're yeah. not going to be that. Yeah, well, you know what worries me always is if they're left to their own devices, and, you know, studies show that humans belong in groups of about 200, we can self-organise without without needing uh, complex punitive leadership. Things are just fine. We can work out our problems. We don't need government. And, and I've argued in the past, this was one of the main reasons that the government had to jump in and smash the Wellington protests at Parliament, because you had these people looking out for each other, cleaning up rubbish, stopping crime, solving disputes. 
And it was just right in their face, right in Trevor Mallard's punchable nose, right under it, that humans are just fine without you guys dividing us up so you can rule us. And so it had to be smashed. Do you think Trev will come home or will he be clutching on to his Guinness and... They need to. They need, it's an embarrassment that that man is representing New Zealand. I will be intrigued to see whether they recall him. It was pretty. Well, I hope they do. I hope they do. He's a disgrace. You know, I mean, it embarrassed me that Damien O'Connor was um, representing New Zealand at APEC. The thought of Chris Hipkins being sworn in again as Prime Minister stings like an anal fissure. To quote George Costanza's father, Frank, I just. I just want them to go away. Mm. You also read that big bleating article by journalist Michelle Duff, who wrote a biography of Jacinda Ardern in 2019. And just listen again, it gets back to just listening to them flap around trying to make excuses. What she arrived at was it was misogyny. I know. And and also, too, the greatest uh, thing that she was most worried about with this new coalition coming in was the identity of the parliamentarians. Yeah. Who gives a rat's ass about their identity? I couldn't give a tinker's tuppence about how they identify, whether they're male or female, what colour their skin was, who they want to shag. All I want to know is, is that they will come in and work collectively to fix shit. Yeah, they're competent, that they've got some experience, uh, that they've got some some sensibility with uh, public cash rather than treating these things as their own little fiefdoms. She's rewritten the book, by the way. Most of our listening audience here probably did what I did in a bookshop and uh, turned a dune, because that was the book that sparked the turn a dune craze. However, so many however, misogynistic women. I know, I know. She's updated it and put in chapters in regards to how she went from being a deity to a demon. Javier Malay made a really good point about this, and I thought about Jacinda Ardern while I was listening to it. He said, in order for socialism to work, Government has to be omnipresent, omnipotent, and uh, omniscient. So they have to know everything, be everywhere, and and see everything. And that was her aim. You know, we are your one source of truth. Because our faith in God has ebbed somewhat as a society, it's more difficult for people to understand that these people want to play God. They want to change the weather through their little financial instruments, they want to play God, and they despise the idea that there's any external morality outside what they themselves designate. Mm. Actually, uh, as well as the hand-wringing that went on around how long the negotiations are taking and, you know, the PR puff pieces around how fabulous the headhunter HQ is, the, uh, the other thing that both you and I noted on this end was the climate catastrophizing that appeared. I skim read a lot of these because a lot of the science I know is your wheelhouse more than mine. It was very exciting listeners, but Marty and I got to catch up in real life this last week. It was all very good. And we actually were quite good. We didn't talk about too much worky stuff. It was it was nice. It's mostly me talking to Mr. Murray. Yes, exactly. It was you two going off doing your, your bro bonding. One uh, of the things yeah, that we yeah. did talk about, though, because we both live within the proximity of the ocean. Did you see the one about the banks and the environment in terms of the profiteering with the banks? 
I know I only cut out two. There was the, the other one I saw was public buy-in with response to climate change essential. With the Auckland floods in January followed hot on the heels by Cyclone Gabrielle, the reality of climate change is now really hit home for many, said the report's author, WSP fellow Carly Mercer. Carly, the goddess of destruction of our economy, maybe? And a technical principal, Gemma Greenshields, also from WSP, that wrote the report, said, saw public buy-in as essential for lasting solutions. It's much easier to have those bold conversations when people are in a warm, dry home than when their houses are full of water. So what we're trying to do here is have a bold conversation. I I, want to have the contrarian view. I don't want to be portrayed as someone who doesn't care about the environment or supporting oil companies because I think, well, it seems to be mostly a plan driven by bankers that makes me suspicious that it's just about impoverishing people and controlling them. Well, funny you should say that. Funny you should say that. Sunday Star Times, in the business section, banks change lending policies in the face of global warming. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Banks' climate policies reveal the impact of extreme weather on lending and the market power of the green borrowers, Rob Stock reports. One, they're zeroing in on flood-threatened properties. ANZ, Bank of New Zealand and Westpac are developing tools to be able to identify flood and climate-threatened properties. On what basis in benchmark and science are you basing these models, ANZ, BNZ and Westpac? As yet, the chief executives of the bank say their organisations have not started turning down home loan applications on homes that are greater risk at flood. However, they all say that when insurers won't insure an individual home, they won't lend against it. That could leave the homes as stranded assets and the owners could find it hard to sell. If you've got some numpty who's creating a model for a tool for a bank to decide who gets lending based on the geographic location of your property with some sort of weird and wonderful generic formula for increase of sea rise. And they're basing this on a faulty model that the likes of Peter Foster in that interview with Jazz Preet and Don had already said is not based on good maths and here's why. Could you imagine the catastrophe that that will create, which is why it's so important. Do you imagine people- that it's accidental? Look, I tend not to want to go and dive that down there as much of, as so you using, do. You're using that with fire in a lot of parts of America. Oh, you can't live here because you can't insure it. So you can't borrow on it. Yeah. And it's a way of hurting people into areas that they want, Just potentially at least. Yeah, potentially, which is why I think that it's really, really important that as, you know, we need to make sure our voices keep getting heard with our elected representatives to actually push back on some of this rubbish. Which is why, again, I look at places like Argentina and places like Hungary and places like Uruguay, who are actually good, stable working economies and communities, because they're not buying into all this horseshit. The thing is always, well, what's the next punch? You know, if you dodge a punch, you don't want to spend too long congratulating yourself because there's another one coming. If you're not thinking, well, where's the other punch coming from? It can crack you right on the chops. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Uh, The other thing too is, did you see some of the migration numbers that have been popping in and out over the last little bit? Yeah, it's the solution to the problem, isn't it, rather than uh, helping. And this is where Hungary's committed that cardinal sin of of encouraging Hungarians to have babies rather than importing uh, angry military-aged men from uh, incompatible cultures. Oh, 
I know. And their tax policy is radical. I'm digressing now into the interview I did last week with Jolt, um, head of she. One of the things that Jolt and I didn't get to talk about was the university system. And that is fascinating. And we talked about it when we were together uh, this week. So we touched on the family policy and a bit on their tax policy. And if you haven't caught the interview, don't definitely listen to it. But one of his flat tax rate, 15%. He's, you know, he's very, very concerned about their inflation rate. He said, oh, you know, New Zealanders complain at sort of seven odd percent. And he said ours is, you know, 20, 22%. Bearing in mind the Argentines are 143%. So, you know. Yeah. Comparatively, ours really isn't that bad. But what we didn't talk about was the education reforms. And what this is really clever. What he didn't do is that he didn't go in and completely carte blanche eviscerate uh, universities or institutions in terms of education. He created parallel structures. So within uh, primary and secondary education, he went, which was very, very state controlled, bearing in mind it was only 30, 40 odd years ago that Hungary, 30-ish years ago that Hungary was a communist state. So you can imagine how utilitarian the schooling system was. He then went to the Catholics and the Calvinists and said, I'd like you to get back involved into uh, education, and which, as we know, that both of them, um, particularly the Catholics in this country, are very strong in education. So 30% of all schools now are um, faith-based in Hungary and provide schooling on classical liberal arts principles, so Western philosophy-based enlightenment principles. And in the universities, instead of changing the structure within universities, because he could see that that's still a stronghold for those neo-Marxist ideologies there, and they always have been, that's been a place where a lot of them live, he then created a program that ran from zero all the way through university that took all of those enlightenment principles of art and culture and liberalism and the like, traditional education, and you could filter it all the way through from primary school, all the way through to high school, into university, even if you attended a mainstream university, but you could do these extra courses and programs that actually gave you an alternative education. And he left it up to the people to decide which system he wanted to go to. Wow. Shocker. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if you could choose where to send your kids and have them receive a grounding in philosophy and then moving on through? If you could choose a school and take your funding with you, the the old bulk funding model. Yeah, so it can be done. And uh, I hope that that we get back on track. (laughs) But but I hope that the trek isn't leading us the same place it always has because, as I said, we really do need a radical new approach. And, and I think part of that has to be between New Zealanders uh, without necessarily the government growing between us like a cancer. We, we've got to start doing our own thing more. Yeah, we do. We do. And, and the government the... has to get out of our way. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. In the paper, you know, we noted, we talked about it earlier, how a lot of the couple of the columnists used the International Day of the Child as a way to put a highlight on what was going on over in the Middle East. And full credit to Tracy Watkins, she chose not to do that, and she talked about Baby Ruth. So, you know, definitely big ups for Trace. One of the things I did mention to you, and you were completely unaware of, November 19 was also International Day of the Man. Where was the hoo-ha around that, Martin? <laughs> One of the things I've said before is men have got to 
get over their rage at uh, feminism, specifically not towards feminism, but toward women. You know, we've been played. We've been divided. It's been used to break up the family unit. We've got to kind of get over it and return to to our masculinity and allow women to return to their femininity. And, And I've noted before, this happens within our little movement. People might have noticed this about, for instance, the way we communicate. It's very respectful. It's not flirty. It's not overly sexualized. It's it's, it's the a, way men and women should speak with each other, right? It's a grown-up conversation. It's a grown-up conversation. <laughs> ah, I had that thought at one point where I thought, man, it's a shame that, you know, men are no longer, you know, seen as the leaders of, of the family. You know, it would make things easier. And I, I thought in the next instance, maybe you need to just do it. Just step up and, you know, mm. take your lumps, but just set a good example and hold yourself to a standard. And as I go back to God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, that's good advice. <laughs> it is good advice. What highlighted it, because I had a bit of time to read the, I subscribed to The Australian Spectator, and Mental Health and the Christian Mad by Greg uh, Bonda. And, you know, he was talking about how, was amazed at how there was no great hoo-ha for International Men's Day. And he talked about his concerns around uh, suicide rates for men. And this mm. is something that Mike King has been talking about for for a long time. John Kerwin, I know, has done a lot of work in this space. You know, men are three to four times more likely than women to die by suicide. There's around two and a half thousand men died in Australia of suicide in 2022 compared to 794 women. And what they did is they created just a quiet show of sort of respect up at Canberra and they they placed shoes, a single shoe for every single Uh, man that took their life in Australia. And, you know, that's quite a powerful statement. And again, it's something that no one wants to talk about. I mean, there is, there has been a demasculization of men. And again, unconstrained and constrained visions. Human nature is human nature. And if you're trying to change the nature of men by this hyper-feminization, this is a hyper-sexualization. Yes, yes. You know, just giving you know porn you you've you've mm. done some great interviews on this in your show you know the corrosive effect of pornography it developing that reflex in you to seek out titillating things to look at and if you go to the gym you can spend a lot of time averting your eyes and that's the right thing to do it mm. leaches energy out of you so if you're a bloke out there a few days back 19th there you go, International Men's Day. And, and if you are, you know, if you're someone who's who's struggling, talk to people and and understand things get better. You know, there's that horrible uh, story about some guy who jumped off the San Francisco bridge. There's been a few of them, and they all said two or two or one. As soon as they left the the edge of the railing, they realised they were making a horrible mistake, mm. a terrible mistake. Again, this is something I would like to do at a community level. It's it's like, well, let, let's have zero suicides in this neighbourhood. You know, if you're in, if you're struggling, come, come and have a chat to to this group of people, and let's give you a purpose. We've got some missions we need some help with. You're needed. And one of the key factors in that article, the Spectator article, was disconnection with community and loneliness. Mm. 
And as you said, you know, a lot of men have been, it's more acceptable now to break families up. I don't, I, I get this feeling that people are not working as hard to save marriages as they once were. Yeah. No, like not. marriages become disposable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've got to burn your ships in a sense. And, and if you, you've got to just take divorce off the table and guts it out. And now I look, I realize that every single You've got to make better choices about who you marry in some cases. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. But also do it's 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 there are there are times and differences, you know, you, you do have to work it out. Gad said, and when we talked about the sad truth about happiness, he had two sort of main things in terms of happiness, but the biggest one is around your choice of life partner mm. is crucial. Yeah. Absolutely crucial. And again, not being together, you know, the, the disconnection that people feel. Yeah. We're not actually physically being in the same place as each other. Like we had a great catch up, even though we were only there for a little over 24 hours. It's so nice to, for the four of us all to get together and have grown up time where we can just shoot the shit, you yeah. know, actually be physically together in the same place. That makes a difference. Communicating over a screen is not the same. And again, the pandemic normalised that. Yes, there are some conveniences, but it is not the same as being in person, which is where things like churches and community groups and hobby groups and uh, sports clubs, those were all the fabric of our communities through mm. the 20th century, and they have been eroded in the 21st. Yeah, singing together. God, God knows what we lost when we stopped doing that once a week getting together with some other people and having a good old sing. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's there's plenty, time there's to... plenty of, of areas that we could rejuvenate with great effect, I think. Mm. Hey, um, I've got a good a good news story. Oh, go you. What have the, you got? The battle on to bring Upham story to film. Did you see that? No, I did in... not. So is this Charles Upham? Oh, no, it was in, in yesterday's paper. Yeah, Charles Upham and man can't wait for that. My wife and I used to work with his granddaughter. I was in their family batch once and I was looking at their bookcases. I always do because I love books. And uh, I'm very fond of Somerset Maugham, who was a very popular uh, novelist in the early part of the 20th century. Great, great writer. And I saw a Somerset Maugham book and uh, picked it up and, and had a look in it. And in the front cover, it was, um, it had, Charles Upham, 1944, and I thought, man, this is the book that I'm holding in my hands that Charles Upham read to unwind on the way home from winning his two Victoria Crosses, and mm. it was a it was a great thing to hold. Just just thinking about that, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that they've replaced the writer uh, with a pom, which uh, originally it was. Um, I think Tom Scott, who's, who's an enthusiast and you know, really keen on Upham. So that that's a shame. It should really have a, uh, a Kiwi director. Apparently, though, um, Peter Jackson only uh, does World War One. Oh. oh, okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. It will be interesting to see whether that, yeah, who they will get to direct that. It's good to ponder on what those men did. However, you might argue at the futility of so much of war. What we have to do it doesn't require nearly the sacrifice and is no less urgent in terms of safeguarding the freedoms of ourselves and our families. So be a little bit bold, people. Speak yeah. out. Yeah. Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins had a little, um, one of her many little 
yeah. reels this week, and she was having a, a a bit of a moan around people that, and we get this in this community because we certainly get this on this station. I mean, you're not always going to hear stuff that you agree with all the time. And today's show is probably going to be one of those because, of course, just earlier I had an interview with a trans radical activist from Manchester. And as and actually it was, oh, I was shitting bricks. I won't lie. I really was quite terrified about doing this interview because she can be very prickly. And she, I, her, or, or they, trans yeah. woman, trans woman. So uh, as Dylan as Dylandy would say, him. Right. <laughs> uh, so I will give free to the respect and call her here. I was terrified because I I have seen interviews and she's been pretty prickly. But we had a good conversation. Didn't agree with pretty much most of prickly what she was saying on her chin. Uh, no, prickly as in she can be full metal bitch right. when she wants to be. Yeah. yeah. She was a kitten with me, an absolute no. kitten. So I can't complain about that. You bring that up, you, oh, I try. But there will be people that will listen to that, particularly with some of the other content that I've had. And then you'll go, Marie, why did you do that? I did it because I think it's important that we hear from all sides. Yeah, and I would like you to. Exactly. And I would like you guys to make up your own mind on this. It's not for me to tell you what to think. So it's really important that I do that. And I also replayed Catherine Truscott's interview that I did several months ago, who's also, also a New Zealand trans woman uh, who has a very different differing views to Frida. So we're not all the same. So anyway, Katie Hopkins had a big moaning about people that don't who usually agree with her that don't always agree with her and get really, really angry and say, well, I'm not going to follow you anymore or I'm not going to support you and jump, throw their hands up in the air and, and make quite a big song and dance about it. And we, we've experienced it here. So here's the one thing, one piece of advice that I have for people. Tolerance is a muscle like courage. It gets stronger the more that you exercise it. And if there's something that you hear and you think, I don't like that, I don't agree with that, and that's annoyed me, well, Scroll on or fast forward or listen to it and go, I don't agree with that, but well, okay, park it and move move on to the next thing. Not every single thing that you disagree with has to turn into an outrage. <laughs> so and you're wrong about some things. It's so vital to keep that in mind. There are some things I think and they're wrong. I'm incorrect about them. Hmm. We all we're human. Uh, that's part of well, the concern. I hope we haven't been incorrect about too many things this week. We try hard not to be. We try hard not. Hey, we've got feedback. We've got feedback. In fact, you want to, should we tell the listeners the really funny thing that my husband did to you and I on the weekend? We got back from dinner and we were, Martin and I both sitting on the couch and the lovely Liz from Inbox, we get a ping, both him and I simultaneously, and it was the lovely Liz from Inbox with some feedback. And so Martin and I sitting there with our phones reading the feedback at the same time. And my husband walks in and he's just, he, he just thought it was hilarious watching us read, reading our feedback. Photo at some point. Yeah, I should get the photo off of me, actually. It was it was hilarious. That just shows you, yes, we do read all the feedback. And, and we does, really appreciate it, too. We it, do it, appreciate it. it. It was so cute. My husband thought that he had great mirth at that. Right, this one's from Lynette. Hi, Marie. Listening to your replay on RCR this morning, Saturday, 18th of November, on how programs have been removed from prison, prisoners, and it reminds me of Dr. Paul Wood, who wrote a book, 
How to Escape from Prison. I've read the book and attended an event where Paul spoke. He relates to all the obstacles that were put in his way by prison staff and the powers that be. I have no doubt you're aware of Paul's book. Just thought it follows on from what you were saying and what can be done. She is Lynette. I do remember when that came out, but that, yes, I'm going to actually have to look that book up because I have to admit the prison stuff that you and I have been talking about, That's I've got a little bit of bee in my bonnet about that. I really yeah, do. Prisons, education, we yeah. need to sort that urgently. From Shelley. Uh, Marie, your considerate and empathetic view with Rose Hunter was so well done that I did not want to finish. There could be part two or part three there, as there were so many layers to a unique personal story. Thank you for Marie for undertaking the interviews with people who've had personal experiences in the sex trade industry, and this area is filled with prejudices and misconceptions. And for Marie and Marty, I continue to listen to Media Matters each week and love the camaraderie and chemistry between the two of you. Continue the good work and the relevant coverage to the New Zealand made stream media that's from Shelley. thanks Shelley. okay this one oh this is the, the lovely mike uh, and get well soon mike I, he, he's now back out of uh, mike is a regular contributor and uh, he he's hit, been in the walls uh hi marie heard parts of your show yesterday while lying in my hospital bed but missed lots of the important parts uh, it's been very hard to pick my favourite show on RCR because nearly all of them are so brilliant. But yesterday you outdid yourself, not only with topic, but guests. The Hungarian, Hungarian ambassador, Scholt Hedeshe, was really interesting to listen to. And if there was ever a country for New Zealand to align itself with politically, it should be Hungary with their stand on gender teaching, but also that they have gone through the communist teaching and know exactly what to look for and how to stop it in its tracks. Then you and Marty had the most amazing talk about what is going on politically by informing us with news clips, and I was totally blown away with what the government members and the media are getting away with by either omitting or what's happening straight under our noses or just straight out lying about it. You're both so good at what you do. I always am made to feel better after hearing what you two debate about and inform us with. Big bouquet to you both from Mike. Thank you, Mike. Oh, thanks, Mike. I hope you're feeling better, mate. Yeah. Hi, Liz. This one is for Marty on Media Matters. Thanks for the uh, for the term PTS, describing the condition of people who are not coming to terms with the COVID aftermath, being trying to understand what's going on while I'm here. Please don't underestimate the magnificence of your career in cleaning. After attaining my history degree, I immediately started my own cleaning business. What, hell, what the hell else was, was I supposed to do? I've never looked back. Please put the surpluses into residential rentals and the traditional Kiwi retirement plan. Cheers, Mark, from the West Coast. Oh, uh, to, to Marie and Marty, what a fabulous media matters today. Kept my mind off the dramas. Thanks so much. It was always wonderful listening to you too. That's from Mike. Oh, there we go. So there you go. Lots of lovely, lots of lovely feedback. So thank you, everyone. We do, we do appreciate getting it because it tells us whether or not we're on the right track that we we're talking about what you want to hear. So, uh, get rid of a bit of that imposter syndrome. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like someone said, we have great career. Martin and I have known each other for a very, very long time. In fact, your daughter, I um, blew your daughter away because we talked about knitting. And, and I don't think I. Yeah, well, because I suddenly realised I'd never told you this because I, as people know, I work in the knit, hand knitting industry. And the person that taught me to knit, all those years ago when I was five was Mrs. Marion Gibson, who was your grandmother. Yeah. She yeah, was my first primary school teacher. And, so and, you know, was... I'm sure there are some tales to be had from Waipiro Bay, uh, mm. 100 and 
150, 160 years ago when uh, our ancestors lived there. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's the beauty of, of New Zealand, isn't it? It's, uh, and and it, it's nice having those long associations with people and we're going to live together and let's get on with it. Yeah, exactly. And we will do it all again next week. Woohoo! So thank you very much. And remember, if you want to give us some feedback, inbox at realitycheck.radio and 2057 is the text number. I'll see you again next week, Marty. Thank you. Look forward to it. Have a great week. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.